I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Melissa Parrish. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by principal analyst Gina Bawalker and UX researcher Sanam Balikli to discuss inclusive design best practices. Welcome both. Thanks, Jen. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So Gina, before we get into inclusive design best practices, let's start with the business case. Why does this even matter? Why should firms be considering inclusive design right now? I think it's important to state up front, there are many reasons why this matters right now. And it's more than this is the right thing to do, which of course it is. Um, But one of the really compelling reasons is we are talking about a lot of people that you could be excluding if you're not practicing inclusive design, if you're not doing the things we're gonna talk about today. For example, if we look at a global level, there are 1 billion people with disabilities who have money to spend. Um, People with disabilities have 1.9 trillion dollars in annual disposable income. If you're not practicing inclusive design, you're shutting out that very significant population and their friends and family members who number 2.4 billion globally and prefer to do business with brands that create inclusive experiences. We can look at other markets as well. Take the population of individuals who identifies LGBTQ+. They have over $3.7 trillion in purchasing power. But if we're not considering you know, specific needs of this population, then we're not going to be successful in reaching them as organizations. And you start to see that when you look at the country level too. Um, you know, for example, here in the US, one of my favorite examples to use is our rapidly growing aging population. You know, we're going to see our over 65 demographic increase by 34% in the next decade. And most companies aren't considering that population when they design digital products. You know, they're not thinking about the changing physical and cognitive disabilities that impact how people use technology. So that's in and of itself is a really compelling reason, just the number of individuals. This is not an edge case we're talking about. We're talking about you know significant um, populations here. And then beyond that, there's also really compelling arguments around, for example, retaining your employees. So we know that employees care about working for organizations that are diverse, that value diversity and inclusion. Um, 76% of employees in the US, according to a Glassdoor survey, say a diverse workforce is an important factor when they're evaluating companies. Another interesting finding from a survey that our team runs with design teams is that when we look at accessibility programs in companies, so this is, you know, efforts to make sure that we're not excluding people on the basis of disability, 48% of those programs, they're not started by executives. They're not started from top-down mandates. They're actually driven as grassroots efforts by employees who are saying this is important and we need to be doing this work at our organization. So if you want to retain employees like these groups that care about inclusion, it's really important that we're practicing inclusive design, that we're making that a priority. And then if I could, Jen, I'll just hit on one last point as well, which is 
you know, perhaps the reason a lot of organizations start to create programs around inclusive design is this is about mitigating risk. So, for example, um, last year in 2021, there were over 4,000 lawsuits in the United States against companies that aren't creating accessible digital experiences. So, you know, the organizations are increasingly being held accountable if they ship products that exclude this population of individuals. And, you know, if you don't want to be the next company that's part of that bucket, it's really important that we take a proactive approach to this work. I wonder if we can um, go back to some fundamentals for a minute, because you said some really interesting things I just want to make sure are are, are clear. Um, when we're talking about inclusive design, we automatically start talking about the things that are the most pressing because they are the most frequently missed, right? people with disabilities, as you've discussed, people in the LGBTQ plus community. But in your research, you're really talking about being inclusive, right? What what always strikes me when I read your incentives research, Gina, is that it reminds me of um, you know, people complaining about airline seats and how they're so uncomfortable because they were designed for an average and like an average size person doesn't exist, right? Like people are taller, it's, the average is just the average. Um, so I'm wondering how we think of the idea of inclusivity. How expansive are we talking about? How do we have to change the way we conceive of design in order to truly be inclusive? And then how do we do this stuff? Like brass tacks, are there some best practices? What can we, how do we actually get this done? It seems a little overwhelming. It can feel very overwhelming. And that's why this is such a great question you're asking here, Melissa. And it starts with acknowledging that there is no such thing as an average customer. I mean, you talked about the airline seat example. We see that in most industries. I still talk to a lot of design teams who are relying on this 80-20 rule. We're going to design for this 80% and you know accommodate everyone else. And we want to actually shift that way of thinking to more, this is about designing for the differences that you know, are just inherent in humanity. Recognizing your customer base is diverse and that has a direct impact on the design choices that you need to make. And the good news is it doesn't have to be overwhelming. There are proven best practices that Sanam and I have identified through our research that will help us design for that diversity that exists within the target markets that we serve as organizations. Um, and it includes things like, you know, one, which we already spoke about a bit on the podcast in the past, making sure experiences are accessible. There's very clear guidance from the world, uh, the W3C, about how to build accessible experiences. So we have that. It also is about things like using inclusive language. Many design teams underestimate the power of the words that they're using in their experiences. And we know that words have the power to, to exclude. So being cognizant about those choices that we're making, considering diversity when we are running customer research, making sure that we are not making decisions based on homogenous samples of individuals. And then also, even when we look inside our organizations, making sure that we are building diverse and inclusive teams, that the teams that are at the table when those critical decisions about the products are being made are themselves diverse, that we're representing all of those key perspectives. I would love to maybe just dig into 
a few of the, the, the things that you just talked about, Gina. Um, and, and maybe, I don't, I don't know, Senem, if you want to dig into, you know, choosing your words carefully, I think it's such a basic thing to say, but it's, it is, it's really a, a, major point here. So what do we, what do we mean exactly when we say choose your words carefully? Yeah, sure. Inclusive language is a very important component to create inclusive experiences. Um, but what do, what do we mean by that? Maybe um, I can start with a definition first. Um, in our research, we define inclusive language as language that acknowledges the full range of human diversity with respect to ability, gender identity, language, race, socioeconomic status, and uh, many other characteristics. And there are several things we can do to make sure we use inclusive language in the experiences we design. In our research, Gina and I discuss uh, several best practices. Uh, one thing to consider for inclusive language is to uh, speak and write in plain language, which means that communicating in a simple and clear way so that your audience can understand the content the first time they read or hear it. This is what plain language aims for. And if the content is not clear for your audience, then we can't really talk about an inclusive experience there. Um, and another component to inclusive language is to avoid exclusionary terms. Um, because many words that we use in our daily conversations are exclusionary and they reproduce implicit bias. Uh, for instance, think about words such as normal or blind spot. They actually contribute to stigmas around disabilities and uh, mental illness. Um, another example would be in computer engineering, the words such as master and slave have been used to describe hierarchies between uh, devices. Uh, but leading firms now replace them with alternatives and they use primary and secondary instead. Um, and inclusive language is also important to create inclusive forms and surveys. Again, that's something we run into uh, very often in our uh, daily lives. And um, providing inclusive answer choices it's very important in that sense. Um, despite its importance, we often see that in surveys or in registration forms, uh, there are certain assumptions. For instance, gender is not binary to many, but we often see examples where um, answers to uh, gender question is male and female, and the third option is other, which is not an inclusive experience because everybody who doesn't identify as male or female are grouped in the this third group other. Um, and that's why with such practices, uh, if we can make the language we use more inclusive, we can also make the design we create more inclusive. That's why um, inclusive language is in our research, we uh, say it's an important component to creating inclusive experiences. If I could just add one comment here, because I, I think all those points Sanem just made are great, but one of the challenges that we often hear from organizations is, this is all well and good, but how do I scale this? You know, mm -hmm. particularly if I'm at a very large 
company. And so we've been really excited by some of the practices we're seeing come out of organizations like Salesforce, where they said, we're going to create an inclusive language review process whereby any product team can come to this group that's in their Office of Ethics and Humane Use and just have a conversation about words that they're using in their products that they think might be exclusive. You know, for example, we have a control that we're calling enable disable, you know, is, is that bad because, you know, we don't want to use the word disabled, you know, because it could potentially be considered exclusionary as it relates to disability. And so this whole process just encourages teams to ask more questions about the experiences that they're building. Um, questions like, is this term going to reinforce harmful stereotypes? If so, we probably shouldn't be using it in this experience. And so I would encourage organizations to take best practices like those Senum described and say, how can we make those repeatable um, and you know make it easy for teams to, to start to consider the consequences of these choices? It strikes me that asking questions um, about one's own work uh, is probably the first step towards a solution to a lot of this. Uh, for example, Gina, when you were speaking earlier about uh, uncovering bias in customer research, when we're talking about implicit bias, there's a reason it's implicit, right? So many people don't even know they have it or are doing it. Um, so obviously, I think asking some of those questions, getting outside perspective is one way to uncover those challenges what are some what are some others that we can employ even all the way at the beginning of the process for during during customer research to make sure we're not going off the rails absolutely i mean a lot of this comes down to not making assumptions you know i as a white female cannot make an assumption about what a person of color may feel right um, i cannot make an assumption about what someone who is blind, you know, would perceive an experience to be. And so the most important thing that we can do when it comes to research is embrace the notion that we need to build with, not for. Um, I always kind of remind clients of, you know, the disability rights movement mantra, nothing about us without us. And I wish every company would embrace that as it relates to, you know, we need to be bringing perspectives from these underrepresented groups into our research versus assuming what they need. And we see great examples out there that organizations can emulate. Um, we often talk about the work from Scotiabank in Canada, for example, when they redesigned their mobile banking app a couple of years ago they co-created that app with people with disabilities. They included them in research from the start. And if you look at their app, you see the result of that. You know, everything is easy to read. The fonts are scalable. So it works really well for people with low vision. And by the way, all of those features just help all of us have a better, easier experience as, as well. Nice side benefit of doing this work. So I would say that's probably the biggest one, Melissa, is, is you know, build with, not for. Um, include diverse perspectives early in research, not once you've launched the product. It, it has to be throughout. And then another best practice here is um, to examine the samples from recent studies that you have done and begin asking questions like, are there imbalances in these samples? Have we under or overrepresented certain groups? We spoke with a tech company, for example, who, you know, B2B tech company, um, there were internal assumptions that a lot of their customers were males. And when they actually started to 
dig into their samples, you know, they, they uncovered, well, wait a minute, A, that's not true. And when we start to cut our data by gender, we start to find some really interesting things. Um, they had done a, a study around understanding what their clients' biggest challenges were at work. And when they cut it by gender and they looked at the experience of their customers who were women, these women were saying gender was their biggest challenge at work. That obviously was not coming out when they were just initially looking at the data and not considering gender. So, Oh, irony. Yeah. Oh, irony. Exactly. So that would be a good exercise for anyone listening to this to do is like, look at a recent project and ask yourself those questions. Like who, who were we making these decisions, you know, based on whose perspectives were um, influencing the particular actions or design decisions that we made with our product? And how can we make sure that going forward, we are intentionally recruiting people with you know, a range of abilities, gender identities, ages, whatever factors are most important based on the problem space that you're working in. I would also like to add that um, the research methods are also important to make sure that your research methods are also inclusive. Um, for example, do they allow everyone to fully participate? Do people, can people with disabilities participate in your research fully and easily? Um, are you able to recruit people with disabilities or people from underrepresented groups? These are all important questions to consider when it comes to recruitment and also the research methods you use. Um, and if you think you don't have access to those groups, maybe it's time to consider partnerships with research platforms, with access to a diverse pool of users. And as part of this, I should also talk about that having the right resources is also important, like having the researchers, researchers with experience in usability tests with screen readers, for example, because this is a very different experience than um, different types of uh, usability testing. It requires experience. And um, Although part of the reason for why we do research is to understand, um, in some cases, maybe like if you if you're interested in doing research with underrepresented groups, um, I mean we do research to understand them, but it's also equally important to know the needs and challenges these groups face in advance, so that you can make sure you're asking the right questions in the right ways. So, um, Sanam, you were just talking about, you know, the the requisite sort of skill sets of of the teams here. Um, and Gina, you had mentioned this, right? That the teams building these experiences should also be diverse and inclusive. Talk to us a little bit more about what what does that mean in, in real terms? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll actually start with an example. I, I heard from an organization that I interviewed, um, building off of Senem's point there just a moment ago. So for example, if you are creating an experience for immigrants to the United States, right? Um, many of whom may not speak English as their first language, having a 
researcher on your design team um, who speaks that particular language, who comes from that particular background, was themselves an immigrant. Um, having that individual running that research, you will be able to establish rapport and create a comfortable environment for those participants to provide very honest feedback about your products and experiences. And so that's just one example of how making sure that your team actually reflects the the customers that you serve or who you are hoping to better serve in the future as an organization is really important. Because at the end of the day, a lot of what we need to do as design teams is get really, really good at recognizing and stopping exclusion. And the best way to do that is to have that variety of perspectives at the table anytime a decision is being made that's going to impact that, that end customer. So, you know, and, and I would think about this both in terms of diversity, how we typically think of diversity, right? Yes, you want to have a team, you know, that's diverse in terms of ability, age, gender, identity, race, sexual orientation. That's where our minds typically jump to when we hear diverse teams. But what we have found in our research is that when you're building a design organization, you also want to represent things like cultural background, variety in terms of education. You know, if all of your designers have Ivy League degrees and came from backgrounds that sort of, you know, allowed them access uh, to, you know, that sort of education, you're probably, you know, missing out on a very important perspective. Um, you know, I, for example, we interviewed a, a gentleman in a tech company who said he had a teammate who grew up in poverty in the United States and, you know, really kept the team honest about certain challenges that some of their customers who are growing up in similar situations are facing. Um, you have to have those kind of diversity of perspectives with within your team. And that particular individual, he actually um, summarized this as like everyone in the design team has you know, some superpower. And that superpower could be related to an inherent characteristic they have, or it could be that they just grew up in a vastly different environment and they're able to encourage the broader team to, you know, look at the products through that particular worldview, that particular lens. We're talking about building diverse teams. And I mean, I think it's so important for literally any team, um, not necessarily just a design team. But I know that depending on where you are sitting in a business, sometimes people are are hired specifically to play that role, to question assumptions, to um, to pull out some of the implicit bias, to make sure that people are being represented. And in other cases, it is more like what I think you've just been describing, where you hire incredible designers who come from diverse backgrounds. Is there... Is there a need to start with one versus the other? Would you recommend a particular direction for design teams specifically? So everything we just talked about, you know, having these diverse perspectives representing the team, absolutely important. But it's also critical to realize that everything we've discussed on this podcast, this is a new muscle that organizations are developing. For example, designers are not taught in school how to practice inclusive design. We're starting to see that on some curriculums, but many people are entering the workforce having not thought about these things at all. So there is definitely a need in organizations for dedicated roles that are focused on upskilling the organization on 
what it looks like to create inclusive products and why that matters on creating the processes that will ensure that that happens every time. Going back to like the inclusive language review process we talked about earlier, you know, there was a team that was responsible for creating that to really enable and empower all product teams to make better decisions. And so we are seeing roles in organizations, you know, called inclusive designers. Um, we see accessibility designer roles who are responsible for creating those repeatable processes that then the rest of the, the, the design team, you know, is applying as part of their day-to-day -day work. So there is definitely a need for, you know, internal expertise in executing the methodologies of inclusive design and, you know, really defining what the organization's approach is to ensure that this just becomes part of how we design product services and experiences. Is this sort of pushing on an open door, like when designers are, are maybe advocating for this or leaders are advocating for these roles, as you've just described, is it like, uh, oh, yeah, obviously we, we need that? Or is there pushback? You know, do leaders or designers need to build a business case for inclusive design at the end of the day? It's definitely not obvious to most executives <laughs> that this is something that we need to be doing. So absolutely, um, designers who or whoever is driving this forward in organizations, it typically starts with making a business case. What's really interesting is that that business case looks different from organization to organization. For example, we have some clients who are able to tie this directly to the mission or the core values of the company. If you're able to do that, you're going to be very successful because it's going to be hard for your CEO to argue with the fact that, you know, no, it's okay for us to keep excluding people, even though we have the word inclusion <laughs> in our mission. Um, so I, I would definitely think about that. I've seen other organizations who leaned more into the attracting and retaining talent benefit that we spoke about earlier on the episode. Um, it's really hard, particularly in the field of design right now, to find talent. It's a very competitive market. And so, you know, building a case around the fact that this is something designers are considering when they join organizations and we're at a disadvantage if we don't have an internal discipline around it could be a really effective approach. And then, you know, mitigating risk in a lot of financial institutions that we work with where, you know, very compliance driven compliance plays a critical role in these companies, sometimes saying, look, we're at risk, you know, if we don't have good practices, you know, around ensuring our technologies are accessible, for example, that could be a way to at least kind of get the ear of those executives um, and get the funding you know, that's needed to begin to instill some of these practices. So because of that last point, Gina, are you seeing that more that regulated industries are more at the forefront of this because regulation has is or in compliance is sort of forcing their hand. Is that what you're seeing out in the market? They're not at the forefront, but they are they are coming on board. Um, they are starting to do the work. The technology, the the kind of high tech industry. When we look at like the Microsofts, the Salesforces of the world, the Adobe's of the world, they tend to be at the forefront. Um, you know, they're the ones who are establishing, you know, what does it actually 
look like to have a product inclusion practice? And, you know, what are some of the methodologies um, that are, are critical to have as part of that? You know, Adobe made their inclusive design training open source a couple of years ago. And we now see organizations like banks, you know, who are coming at it from more of a regulatory angle, leaning on the great work that those organizations are sharing to stand up their own internal practices. So for those individuals who are in organizations where they're not pushing on an open door, right, they need to establish that business case, build that buy-in for stakeholders to get the resources, both people resources and and budget to um, build an inclusive design practice or include this as just part of their practice. What is your advice here? You absolutely have to talk about the business impact of doing this work. So highlighting the number of customers that could be within your reach if you practice inclusive design, highlighting the number of employees who value diversity and inclusion that you can attract and retain. You have to start there. That's going to be very critical to actually getting the funding that you need to do this work. And my advice would be to uh, humanize the people affected by non-inclusive design. Uh, I mean, users, customers, these are not abstract concepts. We are talking about real people here. And user research, usability testing, these are very powerful tools to show that impact. Great. Well, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Want to know if your experiences are inclusive? Discover how to evaluate digital experiences at CX North America on June 7th through 9th. Meet us in person in Nashville or attend our virtual experience. Register now at 4.com slash CX NA 2022. That's F O R R.com slash CX NA 2022. Thanks for listening.